a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. The doctor is almost at the Truth About Cancer Ultimate Live Symposium. Dr. Batar, it is this week. Excited to see you and get everybody together and uh, bring about this uh, this healing that belongs to each and every one of us. But uh, we're just going to reinforce that message. Really great. Now, uh, last hour, I was talking with a couple of the gang from the Vaxxed bus because they were thrown out of the Ikea parking lot. And my message of, of concern is this that these children who are vaccine injured, who have not been recovered, that are developing from small children to teens, and they become some of them become very violent due to the pain they suffer. They get very strong, and even into young adulthood. As this society is impacted by more and more of those children growing up, and they're out and about with their families, going like what normal families do, go shopping, whatever, uh, should there be a misunderstanding, and police are called, the elevation and escalation of these events I don't know if the police understand what's going on with these autistic children because some of them are being shot because they don't understand the, the danger they're in and they don't respond according to what a what you call a, a more typical human that's not been vaccine injured. Does that make sense? To the child that was uh, autistic, the child was white, the caretaker was black, and this was a few weeks ago. You remember that? No, I don't. I don't remember that story. Yeah, yeah the, the guy got shot in the leg. He had he had his hand up. He, the kid had sat down in the middle of the road. The caretaker was trying to get the child up. Police arrived. Somebody had reported there was a gun on site, but there was no gun. Um, they told the caretaker to get on the ground. He had his hands up. You know, he got on the ground. He was trying to tell him that look, the kid doesn't understand. They shot the caretaker in the leg, who uh, was a therapist, and um, he couldn't believe that he got shot. And then, of course, you know, they, they didn't make a big deal out of it, but the, the, the media, I think, covered it, and then all of a sudden, you know, didn't hear too much about it. I think that was in Florida, or maybe it was in Atlanta. Okay. Um, no, no, I, I have a vague recollection of it. But, yeah, this this goes into, you know, the police are under a lot of stress with a lot of, for a lot of reasons, and I don't accuse them all of being evil and trying to kill people. And uh, Just like we don't accuse the doctors of all being evil and trying to kill people. But the point is, are they trained? Just like we asked the question, are doctors trained to know what the heck is going on? Are these police trained to understand what's happening with these kids that are growing into teen years and young adult years? They do not function like you would expect a normal adult human to function to function yeah that's exactly right and and it's not you know there's no fault that's being made here it's just that the awareness that are they as you said prepared have they been trained do they understand what the uh, uniqueness of the situation is um i guess the question is that with this situation that happened um were the children i mean was this an awareness bus with actual children there that had been vaccine injured that were developmentally delayed and then there's a potential of one of these situations escalating to the point that you're talking about, or is this is this a uh, potential that this could occur? 
No, no. Well, yeah, it could, could definitely occur. But in the reality of what happened with the Vax bus, you had a lot of families there with their vaccine injured children telling their stories uh, as they are signing the bus. And of course, the Ikea people didn't know what was going on and they called the cops. The cops come move along, hurry quickly, quickly. And you're just like, you can't rush families with these injured children. They just it, it, it's not like normally grabbing the kids and going. There's so many factors, so many escalation potential with the fear, the anxiousness, the anxiety. And, and you know, they don't understand the threat these children especially that could you know that that could arise because the authoritarian cops at this moment are just in what they're thinking just doing their job but the risk is so great now yeah i think that you're absolutely correct um and and it's actually not limited to just this type of situation robert it actually can be expanded to any type of situation where um any type of individual that has a situation that has a alteration or alter they have an alteration in their thought process where the cognitive ability is not um, how do we put it not in a manner that would be socially understandable by an everyday person and where there may be special needs where there's an increase in sensory input deficit that causes them to uh, violently respond to loud noises, for example, or high-pitched noises, or certain yes. light frequencies that will exacerbate uh, discomfort. So that to everybody else, you know, why is this person starting to act this way? But the light frequency or uh, is creating a distortion, so they're covering up their hands or uh, their ears with their hands. But that quick movement could be perceived by law enforcement as being hostile or whatever, and it's complete misunderstanding. And so you're right. This is something, and I've never thought about it before, but this is something that law enforcement and, and first responders should all be, uh, have some type of training in, at least. I mean, it's not, yeah. nothing elaborate, maybe a half-hour uh, awareness-type sure. educational program. Yeah, I think that's Well, and, and I think even, you know, just normal retail store personnel now, because, again, what do the parents do? They can't leave them at home. Do they not go out shopping? There's some serious issues now as more and more children are being injured until we can put a halt to this insane vaccine agenda and uh, you know and how disastrous is it going to get before they start pulling back on this and in the meantime we still have all of these children and many of whom have never you know heard of you or other others other doctors who are helping to remove the toxic mercury and other things that are contributing to the autism manifestation and and so i see you know so many potential disasters here and again this was a little microcosm uh, that when I heard about this Vax bus at Ikea, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is a bigger picture than just that one event. I think you're right. It's an observation that I'm glad you made because I certainly didn't think about that, but you're right. That's in, in light of the fact that the caretaker got shot, and he was really worried that the child was going to get shot. It wasn't a child. It was a, well, it was a young adult. It was a young adult. It was, I think, in late uh, teens, 18-, 17-year-old. Yes. Um and uh, he was concerned that that young adolescent was going to get shot. And uh, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, because the police kept him telling the kid to get up, and, he, and the caretaker was yelling that he doesn't understand, and he's telling the kid to, you know, calm down. The kid was being very irate. And so I think that was a, uh, it was a potential hot situation that became hot enough that somebody discharged their weapon and somebody got shot.
Yeah, so I think this is a, a case in point, and, you, and I'm glad you brought up that example. I do remember it now, but yes, this is the thing that we're going to hear more of, see more of, and uh, I just plant the seed for you folks out there listening, and maybe some of you with the, with you know family members that are already been injured, you've experienced something like this or potentially almost like that, and uh, I'd like to I'd like to put that warning sign out for the cops or, and for anybody in an environment where you're going to deal with with families uh, to pay attention because we know the celebrities by and large are not. And that is, yes, a segue. Don't try this at home. But Ben Stiller is pulling an Angelina Jolie on us for men. I've said this how many times, Dr. Batar, you know, half-jokingly. It's like if doctors went after uh, men's testes as often as they go after women's breasts and ovaries, I think men would say, "Uh uh-uh, don't come near me. But Ben Stiller... Uh, a good little Hollywood starlet, I, sh- I shall call him at this point, says everybody should get their PSA test. Has he not read the medical literature about PSA tests? Yeah, obviously he hasn't. Um, it's one of the biggest frustrations when you talk to patients that have had PSAs that have been done. And I've actually just recently had a patient that had um, an elevated PSA, ended up having a biopsy, had all sorts of complications, did not end up having prostate uh, cancer, but um, they were he was pushed down that route, so this probably warrants us discussing a little bit about the PSA, I guess, right, Robert? Well, remember the PSA where they call it a prostate specific antigen. It is not a specific antigen to the prostate. That's exactly right because we see it in women when have that have breast cancer. Uh, it elevates in in women with breast cancer. So why is the prostate specific antigen? which women don't have prostates, why is it going up in women with breast cancer? Um, you know, some people would say, well, it's a marker of cancer. Well, then why are we calling it prostate-specific? Um, and it's actually not an indication of cancer because we see PSA levels going up in men with benign prostatic hypertrophy, which is not cancer. It's a, it's a chronic enlargement, like a callus that builds up on a hand or something. So benign prostatic hypertrophy is not a, a in cap of a cancer. It's just a hypertrophy. And so... That is, um, it's a misguided thought process that the PSA will pick up cancer earlier because it's, one, not specific to prostate, and two, it's not specific to cancer. Right. And, of course, in uh, Ben Stiller's perspective, he said, if I had waited until when the American Cancer Society tells me to get it checked at 50, he said, uh, you know, I, w- I would have been devastated because I had a tumor two years earlier, right, or something along those lines. But more often than not, and it's been reported, and even this article acknowledges that, it leads to unnecessary interventions that create complications that would never have existed if it weren't for the wrongly named PSA test. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I think that this comes back to the same issue that occurred with mammograms. And when the actual studies were done with mammograms they com- and compared them to interventions, non-invasive inter- interventions such as breast self-exams, they found that the mortality rate did not change and the um, survivability and the incidence of cancer diagnosis and all the different parameters that they looked at, there was absolutely no changes what they reported. Now, I believe that was actually... Um, doctored up data, I'm sure that there was less incidence of complications and less incidence of cancer when people were doing self-exams. But in the studies, they showed that mammograms did not increase survivability and did not increase the time uh, or decrease the time before diagnosis than 
self-exams. So mammograms showed no efficacy, yet mammograms cause compression of the breast, which is inflammation. It's uh, uh, cancer is an inflammatory process. It's exposing the breast tissue to radiation. Um, when they started looking at the fact that mammograms didn't have any improvement, and this was presented to the U.S. Congressional Subcommittee on on um, I, I don't know the human rights and wellness or prevention, whatever subcommittee was presented to. Um, the response was simply that, well, the American people want something, and so that's why we're going to give it to them, even though they recognize there was no benefit to it. Right. It sounds like the uh, good intentions around the flu shot. We just want to do something, right? Does it work? No. Does it help? No. Does it hurt? Yes. But we're doing something. You know what, Ben Stiller, you should try making a good movie. You haven't done that in many years. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, cranking it up with Dr. Rashi Vitar, Advanced Medicine, each and every week. If you miss a show, go right there to our syndicator, GCNlive.com. They have the fastest uh, archives up in the world, and and then you get it uh, all over the world on iTunes and Stitcher and uh, TuneIn and UK Health Radio and all, all those places. It's awesome. And SoundCloud now. RobertScottBell.com for all the links. MedicalRewind.com. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of Dr. Batar and I discussing advanced medicine concepts, including this one, the flu shots. Never, never enough talk about the flu shot each and every year. They ramp up the propaganda, and now this year's flu season is officially underway as a 73-year-old woman apparently died, according to this, of complications from influenza. Uh, by the way, she was hospitalized and uh, had uh, other existing medical conditions, pre-existing medical conditions. Isn't that just the way it goes, right? P- people that are basically healthy, rarely do you hear them dying of influenza, and even if the claim is there, how often do they actually check to see that there was actually a flu virus present? Almost never. And so as they ramp up the fear for flu season, just take note of this, Dr. Batar. 68 people, a whopping 68 people, according to the Health and Human Services, last year died. 68. Now, how does that jive with the 36,000 they claim it is every year? Yeah, well, actually, here's, it's actually probably even less than the 68. You know, So to put this into frame of reference and exactly the numbers that have been uh, put out. I don't know the exact numbers, but I remember something around 120, 130, 140 number of people that die every year from hair dryers, uh, like falling in the sink or in the tub and somebody getting electrocuted. So the if you go with the 68 number for people that die from influenza and you compare it to the number of people that die from hair dryer accidents, and here's the thing, if people don't use a hair dryer, nobody dies, but if people get inoculated, nobody gets, you know, the people that aren't dying from the influenza, uh, from influenza, but how many people are being maimed from the, or being damaged or being hurt or being incapacitated from the flu shot? So now you look at, you don't get the flu shot, you do get the flu shot and a number of people that die. You don't use a hairdryer, you do use a hairdryer, you use a hairdryer inappropriately and you die. And what are the, the hairdryer is a lot more dangerous to use based upon the number of deaths. Now, some may think that I'm just trying to be sarcastic. I'm not. I'm actually making a point that you start looking at the risk versus the benefit. And you, if you start re- recognizing that the incidence of death from the flu, sh- uh, from a lack of flu shot, or somebody getting the flu shot, if you say it's 68, 
it's pretty, pretty low, and they're coming up with the 36000 or whatever you're saying. But now you look at the 68, or you look at the 36000 whatever they're saying. How many of the people are actually dying from the flu, and the chances of accurately as, as an ER, former ER doc, people don't die from the virus. People die because they get dehydrated. They, they die because they have complications. Just like from cancer, very few people die from cancer. People die from uh, cachexia. People die from renal failure. People die from chemotherapy, from radiation exposure. Whatever they're dying from, very rarely is it cancer. Uh, AIDS, what are people dying from? You know, the, the, auto, the, the uh, immune dysfunction is what causes people to die. And what is, we know, you know, we've talked about what is really AIDS, whether you think it's a virus and it's not a virus, regardless of that. People are dying from a common cold. They're dying yes. from a pneumonia. They're dying from, you know, uh, whatever it is, inability to regulate the temperature. They're dying from things that, look, from a cut on the hand that gets infected that everybody else just put a Band-Aid on. So they're dying from a compromised immune system or some other issue that is systemically impacting their system. They're not dying from the cancer or from the flu or a virus or from the whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's other things. And so, how many, Dr. Batar, of those 68 people that they claim to have died last year from the mostly older patients anyway, how many of them had a flu shot anyway? Right. They, they don't exactly. mention that. They probably, I mean, for all you know, all of them had a flu shot, too, but no mention exactly. of it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, they, and so there's no, just because you get the flu shot, assuming that it's not going to kill you, I mean, the flu shot, prob, you know, this is, comes back to the H1N1. You remember that 68, um, uh, you're talking about 68 right now with the flu. I think it was like 62 people that died of the H1N1 or 60 some, 63 people that died of the H1N1 in Los Angeles. And um, I think it was Martin Luther King Hospital. And the Los Angeles Times started creating a big um, brouhaha about why is it that the uh, H1N1 deaths are not being reported. Nobody's talking about it. And then all of a sudden, the story was killed. You couldn't find any trace of it anywhere. And it found out that all those 60-some patients that died of H1N1 that they were trying to create this big hoopla about, all 61 or 62, whatever it was, had actually gotten the H1N1. The f- those yep. people that died had all gotten the, the vaccine the flu shot. to prevent it. Yeah, exactly. The whole idea of, again, of artificially stimulating antibodies that you guess are going to be the ones that are needed. Uh, we talked with Tetiana Obukanich, a Ph.D. immunologist, over the weekend, and she said it's proof right in the medical journals from the 1940s. Antibodies do not confer guaranteed immunity anyway. So what's the point? Inject people with mercury for profit. I guess that's the point, according to the Centers for Disease Creation and Promotion, the CDC and P. Not here, not now, not ever, not on the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine with Dr. Batar. Antibiotics, microbiome coming up. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, the microbiome. I always get excited talking about the microbiome. A couple of weeks ago, I think we did this on the air with Advanced Medicine. I'd, I'd uh, gotten a hold of an article, a published article about um, the gut diversity, gut biodiversity, they call it. It's important to have the right biodiversity in the gut, microbiome. And it was an experiment test, antibiotics versus silver. They put in silver at 2,000 times the recommended daily allowance, if you can call it that, or level by the EPA. And there was no disruption from the silver of that biodiversity, which is important if you're going to address uh, uh, dysbiotic microorganisms, yeast, etc. Can you do it safely? Because the antibiotics they tested all ended up resulting in severe imbalances in biodiversity. 
Now we have an article here saying gut microbiota may have a role to play in neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Batar, I ask you, as we look at the damage to the terrain, the gut, the microbiome, does this preclude now what we've been saying for years and you have identified like heavy metals impacting uh, the nerves and the brains and causing neurodegenerative? I mean, is this saying that the heavy metals don't matter? No, absolutely not, Robert. Uh, The thing is that if you start looking at the preponderance of neurotransmitters in the body, obviously you see the highest concentration in the brain, but the second highest concentration, as you very well know, is actually in the gut. And many of the neurotransmitters are found in, in very, very high levels, some even close to the same levels in the brain that are found in the gut. That's one reason they refer to the gastrointestinal system as a secondary, as a second brain. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the gut, uh, the mesenteric plexus, I mean, the, the amount of uh, and serotonin, you know, for example, and many of these are the neurotransmitters. Do you remember secretin? In fact, let's talk about secretin. That's the best yes. one. Do you remember mm-hmm. the use of secretin in um, treating autism? Right. Okay, so secretin is found in the gut, but it was, in, I, in fact, we were one of the first people in the United States, in Northern America, that were actually giving secretin IV. I was doing that in 1997, 1998, um, and patients had a benefit. Now, we don't do that now simply because, one, secretin couldn't get, can't get secretin as much anymore, and two, there are other ways to help uh, create that balance. But basically, why would something like secretin makes such an impact on people, uh, on, on children's brains, when it's uh, considered a primarily something that's found in the intestines. Well, because it has a, uh, in, in the gastrointestinal system, because it has a tremendous impact on the brain. And so there's a lot of this cross, uh, I don't want to say cross-reactivity, but there's a lot of uh, cross, it would be almost like, um, what do they call that when you have people that are multifaceted? Okay, that's what, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, when people are trained in two different jobs. So these neurotransmitters have, we, we, can, we call them neurotransmitters, but these substances have dual purpose. They have a purpose in the brain. They have a purpose in the gut. And so I kind of found when I reviewed this study, it's almost like a moment of duh. I would have thought that that's maybe where you were going to go with it because it, it's no surprise that if you alter the gut function, you're going to have some neurological implications, and it's no uh, surprise that if you alter some of the neurotransmitters in the brain, you're going to have altered gut function. To me, it's synonymous. You know, you affect one, you're going to have an effect on the other. Well, yeah, I think it's important to also recognize, you know, I, I wanted to bring the heavy metals into the discussion, too, because I don't want people to think all you've got to do is put good probiotic colonies back into your gut and then your brain is healed. We have to pull the heavy metals out. But remember also the way heavy metals are often in uh, injected by a vaccination, not ingested through the alimentary canal where there is some level of protection if the gut is intact, if the microflora is, is balanced and ready and resilient to kind of counteract it. Even the yeast organisms can pre- can uh, prevent some level of mercury absorption, and there's been shown evidence of that over the years. So there's an interesting, uh, let's say, parallel track here. We are not going to disavow knowledge of the microbiome, the imbalance that results from any number of insults, including antibiotics, resulting in brain and neurological degradation. But we don't want to overlook the heavy metals, the mercury, and now the aluminum coming in with these vaccines. Yeah, but that's true. But I think that it's, an, it's a mistake when you start to compartmentalize and think that, okay, because this vaccine was injected and it had heavy metals, that it's not going to affect the gut as much as, you know, through some other source, uh, because the body doesn't really tend to compartmentalize based upon 
the route of administration versus the type of substance it is. For example, lead, regardless of how it gets into the body, will get put into the bones. That's where it stores. Mercury, however, gets into the body, whether it's ingested, inhaled, um, uh, injected. It doesn't matter. It's going to have a propensity for fat tissue, so it's going to go to the brain and to the heart. Um, you know, and so many of these different metals, uh, like, for example, cadmium, is going to have a propensity for lung parenchyma. So regardless of the route of administration, the metals will find their way to certain types of areas in the body, certain tissue types, because that's where the, so the propensity of the body is, to put them, to store them, uh, sometimes just to try to get it out of the circulation and put it into some other place because it can't excrete it well enough. Right. So heavy metals, regardless of where they're coming from, um, and regardless how they entered the body, they're bad, and they need to be eliminated. So whether it was ingested through food uh, or water, or whether it was inhaled through your lungs because of the uh, pollution in the air, or whether it was uh, injected into your body through with the vaccine, it has to come out. And it's, it doesn't matter whether it's in your gut, because, by the way, it does affect the gut. The difference with... The reason the gut, we don't think about the gut as it's affecting the gut as much is because there's a rapid turnover in the, uh, in the gastrointestinal system. It rapidly, the, the, the lining of the gastrointestinal system, the epithelial lining is actually regenerating at a much faster rate. And so when you look at uh, uptake of EDTA, for example, or DMPS, um, you see EDTA has a very low uptake in the gut, only about a 5% uptake. Um, DMPS has, you know, depending on the route of administration, you can get up to 50% uptake of DMPS through the gut into the systemic absorption. But the heavy metal component to say that because it was injected, you know, you may get some benefit uh, or some buffering in the gastrointestinal system, I don't think that's accurate. I think that regardless of how it gets into the body, it needs to come out, and the gut is no different than any other place. It needs to be depleted. Yep, very well said, very well said. Now, uh, further disruption to the microbiota or microbiome, of course, the overuse and abuse of these antibiotic, these so-called wonder drugs, when they abandon homeopathy and herbs and silver and things over the course of the 20th century because the rapid action of these antibiotic drugs. And, of course, we, you know, not only do they have the so-called superbugs, but, uh, you know, the, the ongoing destruction of the, well, the terrain, the microbiome. Uh, resulting in all kinds of problems. Now, this is an interesting study that just came out, and it's about antibiotic use in hospitals. Now, we said that the majority of uh, iatrogenic, um, what do we call that, antibiotic-resistant drugs, uh, antibiotic-resistant infections are happening in hospital settings because of that's where all of this is churning and, you've been, you know, more antibiotics, it's, it's more development, etc. But now they say that a hospital bed, can be a vector for transmission even after it's cleaned, according to the study. In other words, if there if a patient was given an antibiotic on the bed, then they that patient is gone. They clean the bed. You get in the bed versus a bed where the patient was not on an antibiotic. The more likely are you to have an infection. I know I'm not saying this very well, but it's kind of an awkward thing to assess and go. Wait a second. I thought it's cleaned. It's gone. It shouldn't matter, but apparently it does. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that just because you can't see it or measure it doesn't mean it's not there. It, it kind of goes back to the time of Leeuwenhoek and the time of um, the development of the microscope before bacteria were recognized. And because we couldn't see it, we thought, oh, this must be crazy, this thing of spontaneous generation. Remember the, yes, the maggots, yes. where the maggots come from and so in, in, the, in the meat and 
they used to think that the theory was that the reason that maggots came up because you couldn't see the eggs, the microscopic eggs that were being laid, they would say it was spontaneous generation. You've got meat there. You've got it in a, in a, in a you, there's, there's nothing on the meat, and all of a sudden you got these maggots, and then you got flies, and then they say it was spontaneous generation. Well, that's because prior to that, people couldn't see bacteria um, because there was no microscope to see how this whole, as you're talking about the flora, how, how the entire the entire system was uh, changing. Now you've got a situation where you can, you've got a microscope, you can see the bacteria, and you say, oh, okay, now I see this, there's something that I can't see with my naked eyes, bacteria, and that's what causes the problem. Okay, so now it continues on. Well, who's to say that there's not another type of substance like that? Now some people say, what are you talking about, modern-day science? But remember, the pleomorphic organisms, they can't be seen with microscopes, and, and electron microscopy has been shown. This is where Rife came in in some of his work. People remember the Rife even rife frequencies, but few people recognize that rife's real work was with his rife microscope, and he was able to see certain things that today's electron microscopy uh, can't even see. Am I, am I going too far off the deep subject here? No, no, no. They, no, it's, it's very good. I mean, we had the light microscopy. Rife did some things that you could see things that you can only see with a electron microscope. But with electron microscope, you can't really see living things anymore because it's it's in a vacuum in the same sense. And what he was able to see through his Rife technology were things that were still living and moving through cycles. Right. So, so exactly. And so these are the types of things that just because we can't see something, and I'm just trying to make an analogy between what happened you know, from the time of Loonhook to us, how, who's to say that there's another, another leap that we have to still take and to say that, okay, well, we cleaned this. Yeah, we cleaned it from what we know. We cleaned it, and yet it's still causing disease. Well, there's other things that are there, or it could be as simple as that we didn't clean it as effectively, or um, some of these uh, resistant bugs to the cleaning mechanisms, whether it's heat or chemicals or whatever they're doing, it's not effective enough, and they've become drug resistant or heat resistant, and so they're still propagating, and we think it's covered. Um, the, we've covered the spectrum, but we haven't covered the spectrum, and now we put a patient on there, their systems are already rendered susceptible, and now you got an, uh, some kind of superbug that jumps on board from the beds that they were on, and Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're actually speculating that, particularly with the Clostridium difficile, which we you know we now hear is rampant in hospital settings and and uh, uh, you know old folks' homes, the nursing homes as well. That when they put them on these antibiotics, that these you know C diff microorganisms adapt, and you know they might be shedding spores. They're saying they they you know throwing things out through the skin, and you know it's on the bed, and then the next person that gets in there because these these other people were on the antibiotic. The C. diff just kind of finds another way, and they are more likely to be infected. Well, Clostridium difficile has been always, I mean, even when I was uh, an intern and resident, that was one of the concerns by putting people on antibiotics that you would create a Clostridium difficile infection. That, that's, not a, hmm. that's not something new. That's been around for you know, 25 years plus that I know of, um, because that is one of the things uh, C. difficile uh, resistant issues. This is one of the mm-hmm. problems that has been out there. So now I think they're talk, talking about this hospital bed, but yeah. the field's been around. And that, that issue's been there for many, many and, years. And Dr. Batara, that goes right back to the disruption of the biodiversity. The antibiotics, Bingo. yes, it kills stuff, but it leaves you more vulnerable, susceptible for something that will it take is. advantage of it and opportunistic. And we'll talk more about that. Also, suicidal med school students, too, coming up. After the break, right here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show.
and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Dude, are we getting some Led Zeppelin? Is that some heavy metal rock music that we're going to now have to chelate out of our system, Dr. Batar? Thanks, Super Don. <laughs> Going back. I don't think back. I can out. I don't, you don't think we can chelate that out? That's a different kind of heavy metal. All right. I think, I think once the damage from heavy metal music is done, I think it's done. I think it's permanent. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, just look at Super Don, right? There, there you go. go, exactly. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and well. proud of it. And proud of it. <laughs> yes, our, our resident metalhead. Okay, well, hey, no speaking response. of... You notice that? He, he couldn't even respond to that. Well, no, he laughed, but you probably didn't get it piped into you. I heard it from oh, Super Don. He, okay. he was chuckling a bit. But uh, uh, this, the, well, two stories. One real quick. Herbal and dietary supplements tied to liver damage. This is nonsense, except that... They acknowledge in the story that it's really drugs causing liver damage, and I mean prescription medicines. But if your idea of a dietary supplement is an anabolic steroid or a Chinese herbal medicine with real heavy metals in it, okay, you you got me there. I'm not going to argue that that could be dangerous. But by and large, the dietary supplements on the market in the United States are really not causing liver damage. It's the drugs that FDA approves. Have you seen anything different that I'm missing on that one, Dr. Batar? Well, the the largest, uh, the, the most amount of liver damage that's caused by any substance uh, is Tylenol, over-the-counter. And it, it, it's known to be the most significant cause of liver failure in the United States, is over-the-counter yep. usage of uh, acetaminophen. So... Um, is that what you were going with it with, with uh, that, or just like no? I, well, they they were listing. They acknowledged, and I gave them props for this. This Fox News Health article that they acknowledged across the board, drugs were much more toxic and caused more liver damage. They didn't mention Tylenol by name, but you're right, and we've covered that over the years. But I just wanted to point out it was pretty much a hit piece. But if you read it, you'll say, okay, they're talking about adulterated substances that are not really dietary supplements. That's the only point there. And I don't want to belabor that because I, I'm fascinated about this last article here about medical school can be brutal and it's making many of us suicidal, written by a, a recent medical school graduate. Suicide. You went through medical school, obviously. Do you remember this being a, the case way back when? Well, my insight's a little bit more unique, possibly, because I went to Washington University in St. Louis, which some of the people may recognize as the place where the debate was held last night. And the last few elections, um, they've always held the debate at Washington University. Um, that's my alma mater. And WashU's couple of its claims to fame, it's considered like it used to be, you know, one of the top five or ten schools uh, for different. No, it's a, it's a great, work. great med school. I mean, it's a classic as far as the Egghead Research University. It really is. It was among those, you know, yeah. when I was at Emory that we were aligned with. But, uh, you know, the suicide rate among med school students, you've been through boot camp, you've been through med school. Well, Which is- one's worse? Well, this isn't med school. This was, I'm talking about undergraduate, the highest rate of suicide of any university in the United States. When I was going there, WashU was, I think, in the top two universities with the highest suicide rate. So this wow. is undergrad. We're not talking about medical school. So then when you go on to medical school, um, you know, again, the pressure, it's, and it's, a lot of it is self-induced pressure, but some of it's also parental uh, pressure and expectation and social uh, pressure. It's a peer pressure. And so because people can't perform, in fact, off the air, I told you when you told me you want to cover the story, I was Mm -hmm. just there a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis visiting my dad, and 
the um, the interesting thing was all the high rises on the uh, uh, campus that were where the dorms were. There were there were high rises there, and all those dorms, all those high rises are gone. They've taken them all down, and because one of the biggest methods of killing themselves was for people to jump off the high rises. So it's a it's a pressure induced type component, self induced pressure, and you know you got you expect it to do well, and if you don't do well, then people feel like they have no other exit, so they kill themselves. Undergraduate and medical school, same type of thing. Um, you know, boot camp. There's a lot of people that claim like that they're suicidal in boot camp. Uh, that that's because that the recruiter told him it was going to be um, fantastic, travel all over the world, and, you know, right. get to live the life, and then they're going to bait and, and switch. Butt, and then they're yeah. So then they were like, "Hey, I, I'm suicidal," but that's a totally different thing. That the boot camp makes a makes a man out of you know makes a take, takes a boy and turns him into a man. Right. Um, but real, but real quick, Doctor Batar. Even after graduating, becoming a doctor, suicide rates higher in that profession than most others. Yes, absolutely. In medicine, most disgruntled profession and most exiting the medical profession. You're absolutely right. Yeah. All right. Well, not here. Uh, we're, we're actually pretty happy about what we get to communicate with you with Dr. Batar doing advanced medicine. Remember, if you miss a show, GCN has it uh, pretty quick after the show's up. MedicalRewind.com pretty soon as well. Uh, SoundCloud. Go to RobertScottBell.com for the place to... Have that health, freedom, and healing liberty. And drbatar.com is linked up as well. Thanks for being here. Tell them what they need to know real quick. The Robert Scott Bell Show.